This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial grade AI. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI podcast. I'm Robert Weber, and my co-host is based in Munich. Hello, Peter. Good afternoon, Robert. Back to school day today. Back to school. Yeah, we are we are a bit crowdy right now because we are celebrating our youngest son's first day of school today. Ooh. So the family is celebrating, Ooh. and I am recording. Uh, so let's start into the news part. What what do you have, Peter? Uh, what do I have? Uh, should I start already first with yeah, Andrew Andrew Wing? So I ran into a video by Andrew. Andrew, who's the guy I learned and probably thousands, if not millions of others also, including our dear listeners, uh, machine learning. In my case, eight, nine years ago, Coursera, his famous machine learning course. So I ran into this video. I think it's actually, I should you know, mention their name, Automate Forward Virtual Trade Show and Conference. Uh, and Andrew, in this case, as the CEO, founder of Landing AI, he explains his uh, data-centric approach in industrial environments. Now, bottom line, you know, his words, in my words, so to say, is that focusing on improving data quality has a higher effect than focusing on improving the model. That's what, you know, he gives a couple of examples. One is uh, that he explicitly looks into label inconsistency at the end of the line quality inspection with steel, but, you know, it could be the same for, you know, the paint of a car. So uh, I'll just share that with you. You know, you can look at the complete video later. We'll, we'll share the uh, YouTube uh, URL with you. One domain expert, very important, there he or she is, you know, my story, and we'll, we'll hear the domain's expert again later. And it's always the thing about, is the domain expert going to lose the job? No, 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 the, their job is going to be more important in combination with AI. So one of them, as an example, is putting a one bounding box around an area of a number of minor quality spots. And another domain expert identifies each of them separately. Now, and we humans, we see, okay, one did this and the other that. They, they meant the same thing, but the algorithm doesn't know that, you know. And that he gives as, as one example on if you, if you go through these kind of labeling, you know, potential problems and you get rid of them in one way or the other, it doesn't mean how you do it, uh, then you're going to strongly increase the uh, result of in the end of the model, of course. So, Andrew uh, Wang, uh, we have been told before, um, yes. was it a Vietnamese person, I believe, or no, who told us? No, no, it was, it was, a, it was a guy from Germany yeah, yeah. who writes the books in, in, in Silicon Valley, and he has some friends, I think Vietnamese, yeah, I, I think was so. so yeah, yeah. Right. So, he suggested it's, it's uh, NG is pronounced uh, Wang. So, he's the AI guru, you know, his famous quote, AI as the next electricity, uh, he has a number of new uh, initiatives. One is landing AI, computer vision in industrial environments. Would be nice to get him in front of our podcast, uh, Robert. Let's take it yeah. you know, as one yeah. goal in front of our micro in the next couple of months. Whoever is listening <clears throat> and knows a route, a way into Andrew, who has gone very strongly into uh, industrial, you know, if he learns that we have uh, changed from German into 
the English American language, he may be interested in uh, in joining us. So, looking forward to hear as well from you, listeners, your experience with regards to exactly this: focusing on improving data quality, having a higher effect rather than focusing on improving the model. Maybe there's some of you who have already experienced it, who are now going to try it, or who knows? We'll be very interested. Yeah. I, I think Andrew is invited by Bosch to an event in, in this September right. or October. I'm not sure. Maybe we, we should ask Katja Lauschkat because she's the vice president for applied AI software business uh, at Bosch. And she will come to our event in October with, with Zep together. Oh, wow. Maybe she can give a connection or make a connection to Andrew. Uh, yeah, but I think it's, it's very interesting with Andrew because he talks a lot of, uh, a lot of small data. Also, in the past, yeah, also, he was the, uh, yeah, yeah, he's, he was a guy with big data and now he, he talks a lot about small data. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't recall that he ever was the, you know, the, um, the marketing, uh, because I've always said from the beginning that we're doing this, you know, for me, always the big data was kind of a, let's say marketing exercise of the you know the hyperscalers you know I, i don't say that big data doesn't exist it certainly does exist and there's certainly a let's say you know a complete environment around doing good things with if you have but here you have you know andrew who knows from bottoms up like uh, zap hoheit like jürgen schmidhuber you know he's one of those guys and he has been saying now for quite a while that you know if we want to move on with artificial intelligence and of course we want to uh, he leaves open in what direction but if we want to improve and then compares with you know with children you know you talk about your child having gone to school if we go back even further and we say you know a child looks at you know mother daddy um, looks at whatever a dog and maybe after five or ten times having seen a dog um, you know, the, the child knows after five times this is a dog. And as long as I think that's what he's been saying, as long as we need, you know, 10,000 images of a cat before the machine learning model understands that it's a cat, that's that's what he has been saying we need to improve. So, yes, you're right. And it's it's great to to hear him say that we need to do more research into what's that direction as well. To our German listeners, I recommend the episode with Sepp Hochreiter, where he talks about future learning. That's nearly the same what we were talking about in a moment. Yeah. What do you have else? Uh, something completely different. AI in tax. Uh, uh, I think, <laughs> was it? Yeah, that was the, uh, I think it was the last one or two weeks, seeing all the, the German language, English language inputs, uh, also the American ones. So I think most of you may already have heard, actually, for those who have not. So the French tax authorities, they started using AI to identify unregistered pools, swimming pools. Mm -hmm. It's an um, application developed by Google and Capgemini. That's a French mm -hmm. IT company based in Paris, I believe. So they use aerial images, you know, um, and then a machine learning algorithm recognizes pools, right? You know, from the top, you can see mm -hmm. uh, they connect it to a land uh, registry database outcome unregistered pools. Mm -hmm. uh, will be rolled out <laughs> nationwide. They did a test. 
of flagged taxpayers and 94% of them actually did uh, have did not have their pool registered. So Danny said, okay, we're going to use it. My first feeling was, you know, Big Brother is watching you. Yes, um, I think so. That is, you know, there you go. Um, I'm not sure if we actually have legislation that is related to having a pool or not and then paying. That's, mm-hmm. I, I think we're a little bit each still different within the countries of the European even. Uh, and all, mm-hmm. all also despite the fact that France and Germany, you know, many, many times try to synchronize things. So I think it's mm-hmm. the old discussion on one hand, you know, the state bureaucratic system is bad, you know, so mm-hmm. certain people say that. And I think we see way too many global developments uh, in that direction. So that I believe is not good. On the other hand, and I'm a big supporter, you know, we are the state, you know, as long as we can in parts of the world be democratic. So I'm perfect okay with us agreeing in a democratic way on the rules and regulations. So anyway, the French are not the only ones. I saw a link to um, an Antwerp, Belgium, university study, and they said that 18 EU member states, so that is about two-thirds of all the European Union tax administrations in the EU, make use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, for actually, you know, automating the performance of their fiscal missions. Uh-huh. So I can only say, you know, I've been, you know, a small independent consultant for, you know, three, four years now. I have not been called for a tax audit. Um, <laughs> no, I have no pool. I'm sorry for that. Yeah, my neighbors also have no pool. And I, I have think no pool. No, no, no. I don't have the pool. Yeah. But, but, but anyway, no. The, the point I'm making is that. I've always been convinced that the way and 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 so the the researchers from Antwerpen kind of uh, confirmed that uh, Germany was included. Uh, almost the center of Europe is all you know take mm-hmm. off the use. Of course, they have the data, so they can run uh, the algorithms on it. And, and I say you know that's that's fine with me. But it's always this discussion. Doesn't mean that I that we should allow everything, not at all. But I always knew that it doesn't make any sense that they would not be looking into the data. Right? You, you, you look at the pool of, you know, um, small, you know, um, consultants, one person, mm-hmm. are they in their first three, four years, in the, in the middle, in, in the later? What is their income? You know, what is their cost? Uh, and, and, of course, a human can do that. That's what they probably did in the past. But now let's say you have 10,000 of them, and all you do is you, you start making a model and then you run each of them separate through the model and then you see you know how far is everybody away from the mm-hmm. model right and then outcome whatever 100 are completely different from the mm-hmm. 10,000 and then it's very clear that you know some person in the tax authority maybe looks at it 50 go out and the 50 ones you know they then get an invitation uh, which I'm not asking for that kind of uh, call, uh, but if I'm ever going to get it, you know, I'm have been doing my <laughs> taxes in good faith. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. But you have a caravan, so maybe for caravan too. Oh, well, don't say too many things, Robert. <laughs> Actually, not a caravan. Although uh, in Germany, everybody knows that every Dutch person has a caravan. Has a caravan, yeah. <laughs> That's the saying that goes by. Yeah, so it's a completely different uh, thing. I just did uh, did want to share it again. I think it's, I, mean, I, I hope that's what our, also our English language 
listeners do like. This is about industrial AI, but we do, uh, you know, look uh, towards other areas every now and then. Absolutely. It's only to, you know, to trigger each of your listeners, you know, minds and brains that are in industrial as well. You know, you're going to hear new things and say, oh, what can we do That's with that new technology, with that new approach in our own areas? And, and some CEOs still have pools at their factory. So maybe uh, <laughs> you have to close these pools now. Yeah. Well, as yeah. long as they're in France, <laughs> they should be careful. As long as they're in France, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have an interesting article on the topic. And uh, the topic is, can AI be destroyed? We're talking about algorithmic disgorgement. Uh, do you ever heard about no, that? No, I hadn't heard about that term yeah. before. No. Me too, me too. So the, idea, the, the question is, can AI be destroyed when a, a company did something bad with the AI and the data set? And uh, I got some expert advice on that, and we are going to do an episode on that because I think that's very, very interesting. Uh, can an AI be destroyed? I put the article into the show notes. I started reading it, but for whatever reason, couldn't finish it because it was about you know data that has been used in an improper way. You know, not yep. according to yep. GDPR. Yeah. And well, it's it's yeah, looking forward to. It. I mean, uh, I mean in where we are based in Germany, you know, that's where GDPR is from and now it's it's European um and you know, a couple of other countries in the world follow similar um, you know, legal data approaches I, I, my first thought was yeah right if that would have happened here <laughs> i would have thought okay you know there you go uh, something yeah. like is what you say you know it has to be taken away and uh, you know deleted destroyed and then i think the article is about you say that's not that easy or yeah that's not that okay. easy uh, my second topic is um do the, the xbox uh, have you ever heard about xbox um, maybe it's one of those games um yeah exactly. notebook well yeah, yeah xbox yeah. you've been using it or not yeah yeah i have an xbox at home and then there's a xbox manager um and he wants an ai for quality assurance of the games oh That's very interesting because then I thought this is also very interesting for our industrial processes and they also wow. could benefit from from this idea to have an quality assurance by AI in software and in oh. in, in at games. Oh, that's yeah. what he. So he means he means uh, the quality of the of the of the of the program at a programming yes. language level yes. or. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, yeah, so the program so. is not supposed to crash, like for example. Yeah, that's what yeah, so exactly. it's not about the quality of the story or what but it's like if you buy it and you want to be able to play it for a hundred hours without crashing yeah. or whatever. Without a bugs or or, or or problems in the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's very interesting. I mean it's it's always been weird, right? I mean, since how long do we have software? You know, uh, do, how long do we have software B2C, B2B? Maybe 25 years, 30 years, I've no idea. Yeah. And, you know, as it started, especially with these kind of games, I believe, you know, and maybe, uh, although, you know, you've been there before me, uh, it, it was then, it was weird because we bought, we, we gave money for yep. software and it was not always <laughs> working, right? And yep. that was a very weird thing because we had been yep. buying shares and cars and tables And when there was something wrong with him, well, we called up or we, we sent him back. We got a new one. But with software, that was always a little bit, has always been different somehow and still is then maybe, right? 
Yeah, because games are getting more and more complex. Mm -hmm. And th these games are like films, like movies. Mm -hmm. The costs of these games are millions of uh, of US dollars or euros yeah. and um, f f I think it's very interesting he talked he talked to a Microsoft AI guy mm -hmm. and asked for help to have uh, quality assurance I think that's that's pretty interesting we should have this on on keep on mind what Xbox or Microsoft is doing there yeah uh, yeah another thought I have immediately because as I said so with the software I did refer to, let's say, the consumer games that I do not know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you would need mm -hmm. to tell me if maybe 10, 20 years ago, I don't know when you started, uh, you know, it would crash maybe every 10 minutes and today not anymore. I do not know that. Of course, in this case, it's the other way around. You know, we have our, you know, um, our industrial systems that are not supposed To crash and which I know and can confirm is the case that they do not crash at a regular interval. So I guess, of course, you know, one in a hundred, uh, this may happen, but it's not, you know, if when we are looking at predictive maintenance and, you know, improving the OE of our production lines, we are not taking out, you know, uh, problems of, equipment necessarily right and and also including not necessarily so uh, it's a it's a bit of a long thought maybe but i i can very well imagine and in that case the um, computer um, games industry mm -hmm. could learn for actually from industrial yeah. production how to improve their quality Yeah, and we talked to to Tristan, and he he talked uh, he told us that uh, the industry should address uh, the gaming industry to learn from the gaming industry how to use AI. Uh, that's interesting. Okay, both sides. Yeah, and and I think it's very interesting because he dreams from uh, about a AI bot, and this bot uh, should check the software, and at, after at morning he, he will generate a report, and then you can see where are the bugs in the software. I think it's a dream, but I think it's very interesting. Uh, I think okay. the the gaming industry there's a lot of money in there. Mm -hmm. The ideas uh, should be realized. Yeah, very good. Do you have anything yeah, more? Yeah, one final. Um, yep. I read from a leaflet from a company called Explain Data, uh, and it goes in sync with an article I also started on Towards Data Science. Those of you listeners who know the website newsletter, and it said uh, a production parameter that correlates to subsequent failures does not necessarily mean that this parameter causes the failures. And uh, then, and I... I hear from my former industrial data intelligence startup colleague, Albert, Albert Krohn. He was uh, in our yeah. uh, podcast um, a year or two back, I think, uh, where we were dealing at that time also with root cause analysis. He would always say, and now altogether, correlation does not equal causation. <laughs> and he said it so often. And that seems to be kind of a, a fun thing to, to do that people who know about, you know, this topic, you know, typically coming out of statistical, maybe mathematical environments that do the same thing. So uh, continued and the explain uh, data leaflet. I, I don't go too long, but here's a nice mm -hmm. example. So those of you that, you know, have not heard about this fact. So causality versus correlation, an example. So gray-haired people often wear glasses. 
why you talk about grape? I didn't give that. That's the example <laughs> okay. out of the brochure. Okay. That's okay. the correlation. But okay. glasses do not cause your hair to become gray, yeah, sure. nor vice versa. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. there's a common cause for both hair color and the wearing of glasses, which is age. So the older you get, the more likely you are to wear glasses and get gray hair. So for those of you <laughs> listeners that do not know us, Robert and me yet, uh, only from the podcast, I wear reading glasses only, uh, but I am gray. And Robert wears glasses, mm -hmm. right, Robert? But you're not, yes. but you're not gray. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit already. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So there we have one example, actually. So uh, anyway, the point is, so for such cases, explain data, they provide a patent-based procedures uh, which originally were developed in the healthcare industry uh, and based on extensive patient data. Now, think about industrial data, exactly the same, and that's what we're going to be mm -hmm. talking about. Algorithms extract a small set of potential causal factors from millions of observed correlations. Uh, and these hypotheses then for potential causes can be easily evaluated by the, here, here he is again, Domain expert, no, expert. second time today. Yeah. Yeah. So there he, she is again, my story, the role of the domain expert in times of AIs become more important. Yeah. Details on this very topic, we will get a relation to industry, as I said, in October, November timeframe, uh, after I will have had an interview with uh, Michael Michael Haft. He is the Explain Data oh. CEO. Until then, closing off. Uh, for those of you, as I said, uh, haven't been to this subject, let me refer to the Tyler Weigen spurious or seemingly correlations. We'll put the link uh, in the show notes. I'll give you Absolutely. two examples. So the U.S. spending on science, space, and technology correlates uh, for 99.79%, so that's almost 100% for the last couple of years, a very specific time frame, with suicides by hanging, strangulation, and suffocation. You may, you may need to listen to this again, but I'll give you quickly a second one. I'll, I'll speak slowly. The same with the per capita cheese consumption, not of the Dutch people. It's, <laughs> I think it's Dutch, global. Okay. This, it, not your Dutch no, people. It correlates with the number of people who died becoming tangled in their bed sheets <laughs> at a correlation of 94.71%. So now you can understand those are correlations, but they are not causations. Sure. One of the two was not the reason for the other one. So uh, I wish you a lot of fun um, going through this website. For those of you interested, uh, Tyler's spurious correlations are also available as a book. Um, yeah. Perfect. If we have nothing else, then then we start. We, we in the main part we have now yeah. a, a very interesting interview with Jochen mm -hmm. from Werk 24. He is our guest, and he has a smart solution for reading information from technical drawings. I think it's very interesting for our, for our engineers and for our people in industry. I uh, thank you, Peter, for this episode. You're welcome. Greetings to Munich and to our listeners. Enjoy listening to our main part with Jochen. Have a nice time. Thank you, Robert. Talk to you again. Bye-bye. So our next guest is Jochen Mattes. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Nice to have me. You are the founder and CEO of Werk24. Please introduce yourself in a few sentences and what is Werk24 and why is it German Werk 
and 24. Well, that's for historic reasons, I believe, VEC24. We had the domain available, so that's, that's the reason. <laughs> okay. uh, VEC24 is really specializing in extracting information from technical drawings. So you're in a situation that you have the ground truth about what you want to manufacture, and that is stored on a technical drawing. The problem with that is that it's in a format that is very difficult for machines to read. And what we do is we, can, we translate difficult format to read into something that's very, very easy to process for a downstream process. Once you have that, you can do a lot of things with it. You can check whether it's, uh, the part is suitable for additive manufacturing, or you can check whether it's feasible with the machines that you have. So AI reads technical drawings, correct? Correct. Why is it so important? I think the most things are digitalized, and you don't need more drawings. We would hope so. Um, the reality is a bit of a different one. So in reality, what we find is as soon as a documentation leaves the building, it's normally converted into a technical drawing, it's converted into a PDF, into a TIFF image, and that makes it very difficult for the next person who receives that technical drawing as a supplier, for example, to actually process that, that technical drawing automatically again. And that's why you need to have the work preparation units in these companies to extract the information again and make that available in the format that the customer or the, manuf the manufacturer, the supplier needs at the end of the day. But how long is this business model still a good business model? 10 years, 15 years? Well, that is a very good question. Uh, it's very difficult to answer. What we see right now is that a lot of new technical drawings are still being uh, created on a daily basis. And the average age of the technical drawings that we process is less than a year. Less than a year? Less than a year. So it's very, very current. So, so what are the standards actually? And so I come from computer-added design, So, but that's long, long time ago. We talked 30, 30 years ago, so computer-added architectural design. So, so what are the standards these days? You already mentioned PDF and TIFF, I believe. But w what about engineering drawings? Are they in the same format today, even, even, even when they go out as a, as a digital design, so to say? Um, we differentiate between in-house and out of out of the building. Basically, in-house, you have a very high integration between the individual processes in the organization, departments, etc. And that's when you use high-quality data formats. But as soon as this drawing, that information uh, actually leaves the building because you want to purchase it, because you want to manufacture it by a third party, then you're going into something that is very easy for the other person to open again. Because, you know, if you're using a PDF, you're very, very sure that the other party is able to open that file. And that's uh, why PDF, I think, is still around, or technical drawings as PDFs are around and will be around for a long time. Let's talk about the technique, about the AI. What is the technical background of uh, your solution? So what we have is we have uh, two components that really play together. We have a machine learning uh, component that extracts the information from the technical drawing in such a way that it looks at individual features on the drawing, it recognizes certain shapes, it makes interpretations about what that could mean. How do you train this model? It is trained automatically. So what happens is the technical drawings that are being processed, they're being labeled by the AI itself, then they're flagged for manual verification or automatic verification, and that information then goes back into a training set, then we do a training loop, and then two weeks later we actually have an improved version of the AI that is now able to just perform better on the data set that is coming in. So it's a combined, unsupervised, supervised, somewhere in the loop you, you need a human being to say this is a door, And this is a human, and this is a human, and kind of, or somewhere. Uh -huh. Absolutely. 
So the, the system understands what it understands, but it also understands what it does not understand. And whenever it finds something that is new, it calls in the human and go like, hey, please tell me what does that mean. So the system calls you as the people from Werk 24 or the person who, who did the drawing? Well, the person who did the drawing is very difficult to reach. But what we can do is we have two offers. Either we as Werk 24 and the Werk 24 employee uh, jumps in and checks what the drawing actually means. Or our partner, our customer says, okay, I have my own people that have very domain, very specific domain knowledge that are just doing, going to do a better a job on really understanding what this specific part now is. I interrupt you when you explain the machine learning. Can you explain the technical process once again? Yes. So what we have is we have two uh, separate components. One is a machine learning component. One is the engineering validation part of, of our technology. Now, the machine learning model constantly makes interpretations of the technical drawing, and then it calls up the engineering part and says, does that make sense? Does this interpretation make sense from an engineering point of view? And if it doesn't, it's like playing ping pong, it goes back and forth until these two systems agree on a valid interpretation of the drawing from an engineering point of view. Only when that is passed, we send the data back to the customer. Is that like adversarial approach or sounds like it? You know, two algorithms fighting until they find the perfect or agree upon the solution, which then must be an engineered solution. The uh, second aspect that we have in the engineering part of our solution is a lot of rule-based uh, stuff because you, you just have to follow the norms that are specified and a creative interpretation of the norm is probably not advisable, <laughs> uh, even though we see that very often in drawings. Maybe you want to share with us an example, you know, who as a typical customer of yours, you know, comes into the office nine o'clock or stays in the home office and opens up. What, what is that person doing as a, just gives an example of how is an engineer using your tool? The easiest example that I can give is our customer laser hub. Um, they're an online manufacturer. So what you do is you upload a technical drawing, you upload a 3D model of a part, and in a couple of seconds, they tell you A, what should it cost? And then if you like it, you can really order uh, the part. In the background, they're also selecting the right supplier for that. So they're really a matchmaker. It's a platform. It's a platform. Absolutely. In order to do that correctly, in order to be able to cal calculate the correct prices, you need a lot of information from the technical drawing that is not contained in the 3D model. You need the tolerances, you need information about the threads, and much more. That's where we come in. So what LaserHub does is they send us a technical drawing, we extract the relevant price service, return it to them. They then do the price calculation and offer the result um, to the customer. But the company who will produce this one piece is never in contact with you or with LaserHub? They are in contact with LaserHub. Okay. They are not in contact with us. Okay. So they must trust your solution that this is correct? LaserHub must trust our solution and our uh, return values because they make the price. And when they make the price, they stand by the price. Another example that I can give uh, that is more on the side of the, in of the manufacturer is we have an injection molding company as a customer that's, whose name I sadly can't mention. But they do feasibility analysis of incoming technical drawings. A lot of these technical drawings were originally designed for CNC manufacturing and are not necessarily suited for injection molding. Now, what happens there is previously had work, uh, work production, a work preparation unit that was checking the technical drawings 
filtering all uh, out all the things that were not able to uh, to be produced with the technology that they have and then they were trying to reach the original person which of course is a process that takes weeks because when you call it call that person up they're not going to be answering the, uh, the phone it is a, a painful process now with the automation that we have in place we can tell the customer within seconds that he's trying to order a part that cannot be manufactured and here are alternatives that modifications to the technical drawing that would allow us to actually start the manufacturing process. You facilitate the market. We talked before about a paper, a paper digitizing feature extraction. But here you have another example. You know, this design was never meant. It was meant to be for NC machines, you say. Now, since a couple of years, we have a new technology, which we didn't know, which would I say, 20 years ago, something like that, 25 years ago. And, and you again, so you you do this. What is it? This transformation, so to say. When when Robert, when you asked about how long are you going to be doing this, so to speak, you already said you you don't know because maybe tomorrow there's again another technology, and whatever design, or which which I will come back to though, because because so the companies that learn from your capability, so it's those companies where in my time computer added design, AutoCAD, whatever it is thousands that you know them i don't know them today but they must be thinking along similar lines like you do so maybe some of them they will design your you know ai based feature extraction capability into their new product is that you know you don't have to be positive about your competition but is that something that we can expect in the market the same capability similar capability so we're offering our services an API directly in the pursuit of convincing all these uh, software companies to integrate as, as deeply as they want. So it is, it's really uh, an offering that is available to everybody. Uh, you need to have the information from a technical drawing. Certainly, we cannot prohibit anybody from actually developing it themselves. What we've seen in the past from large manufacturing companies is that it is a very long and painful process if you're trying to achieve that uh, within the company for a couple of reasons. One is access to data. So if you train that a model like this, a model like ours, specifically only on your da uh, data, then it will work. On your? On your data. But as soon as you get a drawing from a supplier, the AI will just raise its hands and We say, um, I'm on holiday now. Overfitting, typically. right? Yeah. So how did you come to concentrate exactly on, on this part of this transformation? Is there, is there some nice story out of your youth or of your studies or where, where did you decide there must be something more than just you doing something? I, for my previous employer, I was uh, in touch with a lot of manufacturing companies in Germany. And one day I went into an office, uh, watched I engineer print out a technical drawing in A0, hang it to the wall and spend 45 minutes finding the smallest tolerance on it. And for me, that was that was really a key moment where I said, we cannot waste the lives of our engineers like this. They can create so many interesting things. Let's remove all this burden. Where do you get the data? We get the data uh, from our partners. Um, so, you know, we have a, a range of online manufacturers. But you can use from different manufacturers the different data. Is it allowed? Absolutely. So the, the nice situation that we're in is that we get uh, over 100,000 drawings per month from very different data sources. Um, and that allows us to really develop a robust technology. So tell us a bit about the solution. You know, you say 100,000 drawings that 
sounds like terabytes, zettabytes, I don't know, that you can share if you want to. So is that then in a, in a cloud solution? And does in the end, does it work in the cloud or does it work also on site? And if you talk about that, you know, how do your customers related to Robo's question, how do they feel about their data, you know, being put into, if so, the cloud? So it is a cloud solution, and the way we structure that is we have the right to store the data, the technical drawings, for up to three weeks. After these three weeks, we completely delete everything that we had because we need that three weeks to A, do back fixing, and B, to include the technical drawings into the machine learning models. After that, we don't have any use for the drawings anymore. We can just discard them. That is something that is very helpful for a lot of companies uh, because they know after three weeks, the data is gone. Now... Looking specifically at technical drawings, people have less of a problem with technical drawings because they're designed specifically for sourcing purposes. So they're leaving the building anyway, and that's why this hurdle is not as high as you would have it or expect it with actual production data, for example. Sounds a little bit like, I mean, federated learning is such a hot topic. Of course, I mean, it's the algorithm also probably, I don't know, but maybe you know, you know, extracting the features out of the data, you know, the algorithm coming to the data, and then I take the features, maybe, I don't know, and then I go again, and then at least those people that are... Uh, afraid about having their data in the cloud to say, okay, my data stays here. So it sounds a little, it's maybe a, a different approach, but it, there sounds, there's some similarity between the two. There's certainly some similarities, um, specifically in, if you look into the customer groups. Mm -hmm. So if you have customers that are really in high, high, high technology, then they feel a little bit less comfortable sharing their data, and then you have to find a different solution. There are different ways of how to approach that problem. Federated learning is certainly one um, that sounds very, very interesting. And you receive constantly these drawings, And you train the models constantly with new drawings, correct? Correct. So every three weeks you get a new model, or what, what is the idea? Exactly. So we always collect two weeks' worth of data. After two weeks, we start a uh, iteration, a training iteration. And then um, a couple of hours later, days later, we have that then online. Is it an application or an app I can download and put it on my PC or do I need a special edge device or something? Our primary goal is to be integrated seamlessly into other software. Um, that is the ideal situation. So we have an API that allows you to communicate with us through the WebSocket communication. And the other way of communicating with us, if you say you don't have a large volume and it doesn't make sense to go through like integration costs, we also have a web interface that would allow you to upload a couple of hundred Uh, drawings or even a larger volume when you say it's just once uh, and then after that it's it's done then we have a web interface that would also allow you to uh, interact with us and what is the business model is it a licensed business model or what is the idea so we have two components when we talk about that. First component is what capacity do you need? Some people really need to have the response within a couple of seconds. Mm -hmm. Other people say next week is fine. Mm -hmm. That has an effect on, on what capacity we need to provide. And that also has an effect on pricing. The second component that we have is we work on a volume basis. So, of course, if you're trying to analyze a million drawings, then it's going to cost a little bit more than if you're trying to um, process two drawings. You mentioned the API. Is it a dream or is it a goal to be in this software? Or are you already in the software? 
So we have a range of customers, a range of partners that already integrate us uh, into their internal process flows. Uh, LaserHub is one of the examples. There's also uh, Creatize uh, to be mentioned. There is uh, Diamondx, for example, uh, which is a company from the Netherlands that does additive analysis for uh, is an end-to-end manufacturing platform for additive environments. They also basically work with us together and the, the integration is very tight. I think what's very interesting that you mentioned these platforms, uh, LaserHub, Creative, uh, how the Creatize. Are these your key customers and traditional machine building companies are second or is there no difference? There is no difference. The nice thing about the uh, online manufacturers is that they're very keen on bringing their name out. So they allow us to mention their name. Whereas if you have a lot of German uh, Mittelstand manufacturing companies, that attitude is a little bit of a different one. So sadly, we cannot list them uh, on our website. But these two groups exist for us. They have different needs, online manufacturers, software companies, basically. So they don't need a lot of software support from us, whereas traditional manufacturers might not have really large software development units. So here we have to provide an adjusted service. But they're both interesting, very interesting customers for us. Tell us a bit about your company. Where are you based? Where did you originate? How big are you? How many colleagues do you have looking for new ones? What kind of jobs? So we are located here in Munich, uh, just downtown Munich. I believe one of the best places in Germany, but we can debate about that. Uh, we're a very small company still. Uh, we have about eight uh, people. So far, we've been a remote first company. Now we're changing that a little bit uh, because we are bringing people a bit uh, closer together in a larger office here in Munich um, that's signed yesterday. So it's a very current development. Congratulations. Very good. Uh, but you're targeting what? The European market, global market, specific countries, specific languages? or We have uh, customers globally. The preference for us is the European Union because it makes it easier to deal with the data. Why? Whenever you go into a different uh, environment, uh, you have the situation that there's local laws uh, that you just need to consider. Um, and there is a process that we can go through if a customer says, I have a large volume and I want to really support the legal checks that we have to pass in order to provide that service in my country. But the customers that we're focusing on are, of course, the ones that the low-hanging fruits in quotation marks, the ones where the interaction is very easy, very fast, because all the legal uh, questions have already been answered. Sounds great. A little bit under the hood, maybe. Like we talked about the level of you know, supervised, unsupervised below it. We have 25 years of LSTM or any kind of other, you know, the ones listening with a little bit more detailed interest. What is, what is the kind of specific algorithm, direction, developments that we see lately happening that you are looking at using? That's where our uh, secret source uh, starts to starts <laughs> okay. to really come in. The topic has been explored s since 1988. Uh, so there's a lot of academic research that's been uh, going on. What we realized is that we read the papers, we took a different direction. We took a completely different direction because we were convinced that how we solve it which is fundamentally different from what we've read in the papers is a different way and that makes it a bit difficult to talk about does it mean that you're going for any copyright any you know legal patent something like that or 
okay, you don't need to answer. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, I can only confirm that if, if you're sure that that is true, then make sure that some legal lawyer will confirm. And, and um, Because then it goes a little bit into your question of a business model. But that was maybe never your thought. But I'm not going to suggest you that you should do that. <laughs> but, uh, but it sounds good. It sounds interesting. It sounds like there's, there's in, dish, in addition to the the millions of papers that we see these days and nobody can read all of them for which reason we do use AI to extract the features out of the papers. You know, very, maybe not a, the same way as you do it, but it sounds like there's even other structural ways of, of doing things. Sounds really very interesting. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. And good luck with your business. Thank you.